Good morning again. Well, um, what Mark just prayed a few moments ago, for faith to believe, uh, faith to believe that God is at work in difficulties and trials and producing something in us, that's exactly what we should be praying for this morning. That's my, my prayer, my heart, is that God would give us faith, um, not just blind faith, but as we see what he says in this text, give us faith to believe it, and as the verse 8 says, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Um, you know, the book of 1 Peter is a really strange book. I mean, it's an amazing book, but it's a really strange book. And, and the reason why is because there, it says a lot of different things, really from chapter 1 through chapter 5, all throughout. It says things that would make no sense if our main hope was in this life. If we are hoping for what this life, the payoff or the reward that we get in this life, for good behavior or whatever, it makes no sense to live the way Peter tells us to live. And this book, this book wants to produce radical Christians in a, in a world that is, that is hostile toward Christ, toward his message, and toward his followers. And, you know, quite frankly, the Christian life is a strange and un- unusual life, too. We often think, don't we, that joy comes when grief and distress and suffering leaves. That's when joy comes. But while we have those things, we can't have joy. Those things need to go in order to have joy. But the strangeness of the Christian life says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. We actually see joy and suffering side by side. We actually see gladness and grief walking hand in hand in the same person, simultaneously, at the same time. And this is actually the norm of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6, says this strange thing. He says, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How's that? How can that be? We think we're sorrowful, and so the sorrow has to go so that we can rejoice. Paul says, no, I am sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. I think of Acts chapter 5, the followers of Jesus, they had just been brought before the Sanhedrin and the, 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 the high priest and the proconsul, and they were told again, do not preach Jesus here. And they didn't just let him go, they beat them. They probably beat him with rods on the back or gave him the 39 lashes But they beat them severely, and it says these Christians, these strange, bizarre people, they left and they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, to be sure, they were licking their wounds, weren't they? I mean, they might have been crying too because of the pain. Their backs were opened up, but they rejoiced. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us about Christians who are also kind of in a, in a hostile area, a culture that's hostile to, to Christ and to his gospel. And because of their faithfulness to Jesus and their commitment to their fellow brothers and sisters who are imprisoned for their faith in Christ, it says that their houses, their properties are plundered. And you know what they did? 
They rejoiced. They had joy. Probably, I, I love this, these verses, but I, I'm like, Lord, I want this. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, this is amazing. Jesus says, blessed are you when people mock you and they, they, they um, reject you and they, they utter all kinds of evil against you because of my name, Jesus says. You know what he says after that? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Start jumping up and down and doing a dance in that day. This is very strange. But we see this throughout the book of First Peter. We see this explicitly in these verses today. Very clearly today. Peter's going to help us think through this. And my prayer is that today, you wouldn't just leave thinking about these things and maybe someday start rejoicing in the light of what's said here, but that today, this would, the, the truth would explode upon you by the power of the Spirit and you would leave rejoicing. That's my heart. That's my desire. That's my prayer. So just, the believers Peter's writing to, they either are, as he's writing, or about to experience intense persecution. Here's, here's some background, okay? Reed went through this a bit last week. So Nero's the emperor. Peter's probably writing from Rome. He's, he's writing just a couple years prior to his death where he is crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to be put to death the same way his Lord was. So he's crucified upside down, legend tells us, or uh, history tells us. So um, he's in Rome, Nero's the, the emperor, and um, th- about this time, Nero, well, Rome is, is on fire, literally on fire, um, 64 AD, July, Rome was set on fire for about a week and it burned a large part of the city and many people died and there's a lot of suffering. And have you ever heard the phrase, Nero fiddles while Rome burns? The reason, many people think that Nero really was playing his violin in his palace as the city was burning. And they think that because he set, he, he set Rome on fire. He probably set Rome on fire. He had this insatiable lust to build, to build things, to build buildings and monuments in his own honor and for his own grandeur and glory. And so he set Rome on fire, more than likely, and he's fiddling. But as more and more people are dying and people's houses are burning down and people are suffering, there's a large outcry in the city and Nero is feeling the heat, figuratively feeling the heat from the people and he realizes he needs to find a scapegoat. And the Christians were an easy target. And so he spread word that the Christians started Rome on fire. And from that time, a widespread persecution began, not only in Rome, but in much of the Roman Empire, which had, far, had reached very, excuse me, very far. Just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that Christians were suffering at the time, not only imprisonment, but many were being put to death. Nero had a, a lust for coming up with new ways to kill people and he would take Christians and pour hot tar on them and light them on fire and he would do that in the palace gardens to light his parties he would take Christians and wrap them in animal skins and clothing and then take his dogs and sick them on these believers so they'd be torn to pieces 
All this, the burning of Rome and this persecution began in AD 64, July, August, about that time period. And the Christians Peter's writing to either are experiencing these things or they're about to. Now remember, he's writing to Christians not in Rome, not specifically in Rome, but in Bithynia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, and in Galatia, or present-day Turkey. So it's a little ways away, but word had spread, and the persecution was widespread. And Peter wants to encourage these Christians. He wants to teach them, these believers, how to live victoriously, how to live faithfully in the midst of incredible suffering. You might wonder, what does this have to do with us? Why is this important to us? Well, it goes without saying that you and I, everyone here, everyone who's ever lived any length of time goes through difficulties and trials and distresses, or as Paul said, or Peter says, various trials, just trials of various kinds, big and small, physical and emotional, whatever kinds of trials, various trials, we all go through them. Furthermore, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, listen to these words. It almost sounds like a promise. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We live in a world that's hostile to Christ. There's a spirit of antichrist in the world at work. And everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will experience pushback, will experience some measure of hostility. And so we need to hear these things. In fact, if, if you're aware of, at all of what's going on in the news right now, not just everywhere else in other parts of the world, but even in our own country, we as, as the United States of America, we are a nation that for, for many years accepted, just accepted the, the underlying Christian assumptions of, of God. There's one God and, and of morality and of right and wrong and of justice. But it's not hard to see that there is a radical shift taking place right now. And these things are not well accepted anymore. And for Christians, to be a Christian in America, of course there's not the hot persecution of people being put to death, but there's more subtle, cold persecution, certainly. We see it. And this kind of activity in the world is not happenstance. It's not just per chance or by accident, but it's actually how God seeks to accomplish his purposes in the world. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.29. He says, it has been granted to you. Listen to Paul. Paul says, it's been given to you not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but it's also been given to you that you should suffer for his name's sake. In Acts chapter 6, when God wanted the the word to spread beyond Jerusalem, what happened? There was a persecution that rose up. The people, the Christians scattered and took the word everywhere they went. It's part of God's, it's even part of God's strategy to spread the gospel throughout the nations of the world. Remember who this book is written to. I don't know about read, but I'm going to come back to this maybe every week I preach to this book. This book is written to, Peter says, to elect exiles. 
Elect means those chosen by God, those that God in his infinite, his mercy and grace chose before the foundation of the world to set his love and affection upon. But we are chosen exiles. You know what an exile is, right? It's a stranger, it's a foreigner. Here's a word we hear a lot these days. It's a refugee. That's what an exile is. We are exiles. This book is written to exiles, which should alert Christians, not just that Peter's writing to, but you and I as well, that our normal existence is lived away from home. It's lived away from our true home. Paul Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And Peter's going to point this out over and over again. He's going to talk about being a sojourner or a, or a foreigner or an exile. So here's the big point from our passage. Here's the big point I want you to... Well, here's the big point. Joy and distress. Not joy or distress. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. And distress. Not joy unspeakable and full of glory and or or distress. Now, if this is true, if this if it's joy and distress, joy and suffering, joy and difficulties, joy and trials, then it cannot be some low grade joy. Like a low grade headache, just kind of with you all the time. Doesn't really doesn't stop you. It doesn't affect you that much, but it's just kind of always there. Well, it can't be a low-grade joy. It must be a nuclear-powered joy. And it is a nuclear-powered joy. That's what it is. That's what is offered to us. That's what Peter says. Now, listen to what Peter says. I'm going to come back to this at the end. Peter doesn't say, you should rejoice with joy and speak one full of glory, or you better rejoice. He says, you do. You do. So notice the adjectives here used to describe joy. First, the adjective inexpressible. Joy inexpressible. This is nuclear-powered, not low-grade joy. Joy inexpressible. In other words, words cannot express this joy adequately. It's, I think NIV might, I think NIV says joy unspeakable. Um, it leaves us speechless. I think many here, maybe not everyone, but many here know what this is like in some sense. Maybe you've experienced such anguish and sorrow that when someone asked you, how are you doing? You, you just didn't even know what to say. Your, your grief was inexpressible. It was unspeakable. Or maybe you've been in love with someone or you are in love with someone. And words just cannot adequately describe the way you feel about that person. Well, Peter says, this joy that is given to Christians, given to elect exiles, is inexpressible. And then he says, here's here's the next adjective, full of glory. Here's the next way it's described, full of glory, or literally glorified. Joy inexpressible and glorified. Isn't that amazing? Inexpressible and glorified joy. Who doesn't want that? What does glorified joy mean? Well, yesterday morning I was just sitting thinking about this and the words of the song came to mind. 
that we sing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Glorified joy means weighty joy, perfect joy, pure joy, awesome joy. Not, not like cool awesome, but like awesome. It's a miraculous kind of joy because it's a joy that comes from God. This is what is offered. It's, it's joy and difficulty, this kind of joy and trials. Now, this kind of joy may seem out of reach, but it's not. Again, Peter says, you rejoice. He just, it's a statement of fact. You rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and glorified. So, what is this joy? What gives this joy its quality? That's what I want to spend some time talking about now. And then at the end, I want to just take a bit of time to to think about, okay, this is the joy that is given to Christians. What if I don't have it? What if I don't have it? So first, what is this joy? What gives it its quality? How would we define this joy? First, notice joy is this joy, this joy that's unspeakable or inexpressible and glorified is intensified through fiery trials. It's intensified through fiery trials. We need to unpack verses 6 and 7 and then see a connection between faith and joy. And Mark said we need to pray for faith, so we do need to pray for faith. Because there's an inexplicable, or there's, a, there's an undeniable connection be- between faith and joy. So, verses 6 and 7. Look at the first phrase. In this you rejoice. In what do we rejoice? Well, we taught on this last week. Just real quick, verses 3 to 5. In this you rejoice. Remember verses 3 to 5? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, His great mercy has been lavished upon us. He caused us to be born again. You didn't cause it. He did. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dying hope. A lively hope. A hope that goes beyond the grave and gives us life even now. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, by means of Christ's resurrection, and to an inheritance. There's an inheritance with your name on it. And it's, unfade, it's, it's uh, imperishable, it's unfading, and it's, it won't decay. It's kept for you in heaven, verse 4 says, who by God's power are being guarded. So it's kept for you there, and you are being guarded for it. It is coming without a doubt, and it is amazing. That's what we we rejoice in. That's what Peter says, in this you rejoice. The rest of verse 6 says, though now, for a little while, when he says a little while, I'm like, I I don't know if he means like a couple days or this life. I don't know. In light of eternity, this life's a little while. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is refined or though it is it is tested by fire and perishes, that it may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
This is an amazing phrase. And I want to linger here just for a few moments because of the two words, if necessary. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, I don't know about you, but I never see trials as necessary for myself. I never do. Ever. (laughs) I see as necessary that they're gone. Immediately. Who sees it as necessary? Well, I want to say, argue that God does. Uh, one thing that I think we need to know, I mean, if we, if we think of joy as mostly, in our mind, pops up like fun, then we're not going to, we're just going to, we're going to say, I, that can't be. But if joy is something more than fun, fun might be included in joy, but it's something so much more than just fun. So though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, God has design in and for our distress. God has design for our distress, for our difficulty, for suffering. Peter's talking to people who are experiencing persecution, and he wants them to know, though now for a little while you're rejoicing in the salvation, even though now for a while you might be distressed with various trials. here's the design God has in our distress. It's to purify our faith. It's to refine our faith. You see that in the passage? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Verse 6. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, dash, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire and it perishes when it's tested by fire. Do you hear that? Gold is purified with fire, right? It's put in a cup or something, something that can withstand the heat and it's put over a really intense fire and impurities rise to the surface and it's scraped off and more rises to the surface and it's scraped off until you have pure gold. Brothers, sisters, Your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith is worth way more than gold. I wonder. I know, at least in my mind, theologically I don't question that. I wonder if some here might say, you know what, maybe you even said this last week, if I had more money, I'd be happy. If I had more gold, I'd be happy. The tested genuineness of your faith is worth more precious than gold. And if gold is refined that way, that's the way your faith is refined. What is even more amazing and more wonderful, I think, is the end result. It's not just that the tested genuineness of your faith is a thing in and of itself, but it's aimed toward something. You know what it's aimed toward? So that... The test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may result in something. God is after a result. Here's the result God's after. Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That it may result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed again or when Jesus comes again. Praise, glory, honor. 
Now, it begs the question, whose praise, glory, and honor? And, and, and I, it would be true if we said God's or Jesus' praise, glory, and honor, but I think Peter's saying your praise, glory, and honor. It's a test of genuineness of your faith that's going to result in that. And I wonder if Peter even uses these words, praise, glory, and honor, as if to say to these Christians he's talking to, now you're being mocked, but you will be praised. Now you are being humiliated, but you will be glorified. Now you are being dishonored in this world, but you will be honored. Now we will stand before Jesus someday, and I think that's when this happens, at the revelation of Christ. We will stand before Jesus someday, and I don't think anyone here, I I sure hope not, I we are not going to stand before him and, and praise ourselves. And there's not, going to be a, there's not going to be a bunch of other people, human beings, I don't think, who are going to be standing around singing a praise of chorus to us. But when we stand before Jesus with the tested genuineness of our faith, that's more precious than gold. You know what he's going to say? Well done. Well done. He will say that to you. He will say that to his people. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have done well. And then he'll say, enter into the joy of your master. Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, up until now, all I've been talking about is faith and not joy. You might be thinking, well, what does this have, have to do with joy? There is an indelible connection between faith and joy. I said that earlier, and I want to show you that. Notice the connection in verse 8 when he says, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and glorified or full of glory. See the, the believing? And then, he, and then he says, and you rejoice. You believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Similarly, Paul says in Romans fifteen thirteen, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing. Joy and peace in believing. In faith. Right? So when we languish in unbelief, you just check, the, check, check yourself here, okay? When you languish in unbelief, and for a week or a day or whatever, you would not be described as a believing believer, but you just kind of fallen into unbelief not believing in the promises of God, not building yourself up in faith, just kind of languishing in unbelief. When we languish in unbelief, our joy languishes. But as our faith is tested and proven, the tested genuineness of our faith and purified through distress, through sufferings, through difficulties, then our joy intensifies. Some of you might think, not me. 
That's not the way it works for me. Well, I need to clarify something. I should say, if we believe this is true, that God has designed in our distress to build up faith, to refine faith, so that faith is proven, genuine, which then intensifies our joy. If we believe that, then we begin to see difficulties and trials differently. It doesn't mean we don't pray to be healed or delivered or helped at all, but we just see it from a different perspective. If we see that God has design in our distress. If you don't believe that, you won't be able to receive the faith-building nutrients of difficulty and God's design in difficulty and the subsequent joy that God wants to intensify in our lives. So, rather than being a barrier to joy, God in his wisdom intends that distress be a means of greater joy in him. So this joy is intensified in fiery trials, but it's also joy that's rooted ultimately in the invisible Christ. It's rooted in the invisible Christ. Verse 8, let's follow Peter here. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him? Don't, you don't have to nod your head, but just, do you love him? Sometimes when we ask a question, I mean, sometimes when we ask, do you believe in Jesus or do you, what immediately comes to our mind is, well, I grew up in church. And, I mean, all these other things, but let me, do you love him? Though you, ha- though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Doesn't it seem strange? See, I don't know about you. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm like a little kid in this way. I'm like a little kid in a lot of ways, probably. Sometimes my wife says, would you just talk to me like an adult? I want to talk to an adult now. Um, have your kids ever asked you, why can't we see God? For a child, that's, they, they understand this is something that's hard. right? I see my mommy and daddy. I trust them. I believe them. I can take them at their word. But I can't see God. And we shouldn't brush them off and just say, oh, don't, wor- you know, don't worry about that. We're, just, we're Christians. We just believe. I, 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 we oftentimes see not seeing Jesus as a barrier. Peter doesn't. He doesn't. He says, we don't see Jesus. So he's saying, though Christians, the Christians he's writing to, they haven't seen Jesus with their physical eyes, and they don't now see Jesus with their physical eyes, they can see him in a different way. And rejoice. And rejoice. With joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. Think about this. Thousands of people saw Jesus in his lifetime and never really saw him for who he was. Right? The crowds thronged around Jesus 
And at his crucifixion, no one was left there with him. In the upper room, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, there are 120. I'm not saying those were the only believers, but many had scattered. And a lot of them, John chapter 6 shows us a lot of people who at one time kind of believed in him, they were gone. They didn't, they didn't believe in him anymore. <clears throat> so a lot of people saw Jesus with their physical eyes and didn't really see him for who he was. But there is a spiritual kind of seeing in which we see with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of believing, with the, with the eyes of love, if I can put it that way. Where we see the beauty and glory of Christ and what he did for us. Let me read a couple of verses out of 2 Corinthians 4. Verse, verses 4 and 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul's saying the God of this world, the devil, blinds the minds of unbelievers. They can't see. And what can't they see? The glory of God in Christ. But verse 6 says this, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness, and he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you were born again, remember verse 3 in our passage, or in last week's passage? God in his mercy caused us to be born again. When you were born again, this is what happened. The lights came on. And you saw Jesus as glorious. You saw your sin. You saw God's provision in Christ. You saw his death and resurrection as done for you. And you, your eyes were open. That's what happened. Then, once awakened, once awakened, we begin to see Jesus, though not physically, like Peter says here, we don't see him that way. But we begin to see Christ in his word. We begin to see things we haven't seen before. Doesn't that happen to you sometimes? Reading through Luke, you've read it six times, a hundred times, you've read it many times, and all of a sudden something jumps out at you. And you see Christ in a fresh way. Not just words on a page, but you have a sight or a, a, a sight of his glory. You see him. And of course, the Holy Spirit loves. Jesus even said this. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he is going to disclose the things concerning me. He loves to show us Christ. Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves to show us Jesus. There's a song, I think it might be an old song, but I've heard it redone recently. And the, the words say... <clears throat> Um, does it say just give me Jesus or give me Jesus? Just give me Jesus. You can have the whole world. Just give me Jesus. And I would say you can have everything. Just let me see him. Just let me see Christ. Joy comes from seeing spiritually, not physically, but seeing spiritually the invisible Lord Jesus. So apparently, not seeing Jesus physically is no barrier to joy. In fact, Peter invites us to see Jesus spiritually and experience explosive joy. Explosive joy. 
Remember what Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of John? When he was talking to Thomas, he came into the room and Thomas had doubted him. And after he showed Thomas his, the nail prints in his hands and the hole in his side, Thomas then all of a sudden believed, right? And he felt, I don't know if he fell down, but he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, do you believe now? Because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. We could trade for blessed, happy, are those who have not seen Christ physically with our physical eyes, but we see him a different way. We see him with belief, by believing. So, this joy, it's intensified through trials, it's rooted in the invisible Christ, and finally, it is, this joy is a foretaste of heaven. This joy is a foretaste of heaven. Let let me just read verses 8 and 9. Let's follow what Peter says here. Though you haven't seen him, you believe in him. Though Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. And then verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul of your soul. I, I saw something a couple days ago I have not seen in this passage before, honestly. I, I use, well, maybe that shouldn't surprise you. There's lots of things I don't see in passages, all right? But, but, but I saw something that I hadn't seen before. I usually had read this passage and when I got to verse 9, I said obtaining, like, like this will lead to eternal life. This will lead to the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. But the word obtaining actually is a present tense verb. It's like receiving now. Receiving right now. Obtaining right now the outcome, the future outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It's like, if I could put it this way, the power of our inheritance in Christ and Christ being the apex of what we we receive forever The power of this future hope that we have reaches back into the present and fills us with inexpressible joy and joy that's glorified. The experience of this joy, inexpressible and glorified, isn't experienced by passive, mindless mantra like, yeah, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. No. No. In fact, if that doesn't get you excited, you probably know nothing of this joy and you might not be going there when you die. It's more than that. It is a taste. It is an obtaining now. It is not the whole thing. By no means. It's not the whole thing, right? Our hope is eternal. It's for eternity. It's to be with Christ forever. It's when he comes. But even though it's not the whole thing, it is a taste now. Psalm What is it, 34? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And even Peter says that. I think it's in chapter 2 when he says, if you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. Have you tasted it? It's available right now. Right now. Think of it like this. You're waiting for a Thanksgiving spread. Anyone else like Thanksgiving? 
I love Thanksgiving. I love all the food, every, every bit of it, and I eat lots of it. So you're waiting for the Thanksgiving spread. And mom or grandma or someone just offers you a taste. Just a taste. The rest is coming later, hon. Just a taste. It's a real taste, isn't it? And it gives you a longing for more. For what is coming. For what is coming. How can this be our experience? How, how can... This sounds amazing. I think this sounds amazing. I don't know about you. I've been preaching this to myself the last few days, though. You're getting it for the first time. I think this sounds phenomenal. I think it sounds amazing. I think it sounds terrific. Um, And I love how Peter doesn't command them to rejoice, but he says, you do rejoice. So here's a question I I have for you. What What if you don't? What if we don't? What if this is not part of our experience? What if this is not our life? What if this is not describing our life? Well, I want to I want to I finish with three exchanges we need to make. You know, when you're a little kid, you got a toy for Christmas, and the toy's broken. You're going to go exchange it, right? This thing's broken; it doesn't work. So you go exchange it for a toy that works, for the thing that you want. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to give you. I want to leave you with three exchanges we need to make if maybe we've walked away from this joy, it's not, for whatever reason, maybe we've never known it. Okay? Exchange number one. Exchange your worldly citizenship for your heavenly one. If you're more excited about being a citizen of the United States or of Ankeny, or of this great mankind we're part of, or whatever, you're more excited about that than heaven. This, this joy is going to seem like it, a strange thing. It's not going to be your experience. You might get little bits and pieces of joy, but inexpressible and glorified. Exchange your worldly citizenship for your heavenly citizenship. I, I, the reason I use the word exchange is because we need, we need to change our thing. You know, repentance means to change the way you think about something. And this is a gift from God, but I'm asking God to do it right now. We need to change the way we think about our existence on earth. We are exiles. Can we say that together? We are exiles. Again, what are we? We're exiles. We're refugees. We're foreigners. This is not our home. Citizens of this world look no further than this world for reward. Citizens of heaven look for the future return of Christ and the reward to be received then. And whatever gets thrown into this life, amen. But that's what we hope for. All the biblical saints looked with eager longing for a heavenly dwelling. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Abraham, he looked for the city that had foundations, whose builder and architect was God. 
And it says about the other saints throughout, somewhere in the book of, or somewhere in Hebrews 11, it says, they looked for a homeland because they knew this wasn't it. And so they had a hope and a joy that's offered to exiles. The early church passionately looked to and longed for the coming of Christ, which fueled their courage, their faith, and their joy in a broken and hostile world. So here's what Peter says in just a few verses after what we're covering today. He says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Set, this is what I want you to do, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, Christians, do this. Do this. Don't wait for God to do it for you. Do this. Ask him for help. You need his help, but do this. Richard Baxter wrote a book called Saints Everlasting Rest. He challenged Christians, spend, I can't remember if he said 30 minutes or an hour. It's been a while since I read it, but 30 minutes or 60 minutes every day dwelling on heaven. Some might say, you know what, that's, that's a waste of time. Not for exiles. Not for those whose citizenship is in heaven. That's not a waste of time. So exchange your worldly citizenship for your heavenly citizenship. Second exchange we need to make. Exchange complaining for rejoicing while suffering. And we talked about this in James 1, didn't we? Count it all joy when you endure trials of various kinds. Exchange complaining. Just throw it out. There's no place for rejoicing while you're going through hardship, distress, suffering. Your faith is being purified, refined, made beautiful. It's being beautified. The tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than anything in this world. And that's what God is up to. In your suffering, I don't think that means you say, this suffering is terrific. No. But we follow where Peter takes us here. We see God's design in distress. That God is up to something. And we rejoice in that. Third exchange we need to make. Exchange a thousand images you see every week. And behold the image of God in Christ. By faith. What do I mean by that? We are entertained with mere shadows. I mean, I think when I say a thousand, it might be thousands. When I say images, what comes to mind? Screens, right? Screens everywhere. Screen right there. We got TVs. We got tablets. We got smartphones. We got computers. People's faces are in screens. And I'm not talking about work. I'm talking about just spare time. So much. Exchange all of those images you're looking at, which are mere shadows compared to Christ. They're nothing compared to Jesus. Exchange them. Why settle for imaginary things when you can have the real thing? Why settle for transient temporary things when the eternal glorious God is offered to you, offers himself to you? We long for something infinite, but we often settle for small and finite things. 
We long for satisfaction, but we often settle for a drop on the tongue, just a little drop of water on the tongue that as quickly evaporates into nothing. Brothers and sisters, you were not made to stare at a screen for hours a day. My kid's in here. (laughs) We were made for that. We were made for more than that. We were made to behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ and in him rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Inexpressible and glorified joy. Jesus says if anyone is thirsty, people are thirsty. That's why they look at their screens all day. They're thirsty. They're longing for something. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, let him, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the truth of this joy that is offered to us, Lord. It's not just kicks and giggles fun joy. It's better than that. So much better than that, God. I pray, Lord, that you would explode upon us this morning with your joy That, God, we would exchange all these other things we give ourselves to, look to, count as a privilege, and, man, receive all that you have for us here in this life and wait with eager longing for the revealing of your Son from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.